Tomorrow's Valentine's, and if you guys haven't thought about that, you're in more trouble right now than you can possibly imagine. You know what you do on Valentine's? You show your love in tangible ways. Now, I have to get creative with that because my wife grew up with a mom who owned a flower shop, and so roses on Valentine's Day mean nothing to her. I have to do that at other times. I have to think of other ways to try to say I love you and I appreciate you. Because you see, when you love someone, you show it in tangible ways. You're not like the guy who said, well, I told you I loved you the day we got married, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) He sleeps on the couch a lot. When you love somebody, you find ways to express it whether it's with a dinner or with a note or with a letter or with taking them out on a date or buying them something or being extravagant in some way that makes no sense, you find a way to express your love to somebody. Why? Because love is expressed. It's not contained and held in. It has to come out. God's love came out toward us in Christ. And the story that we're going to look at today is going to tell us a story about love expressed in a very tangible way. It's the story of Mary of Bethany. We're going to go back 2,000 years today and look at a tangible expression of love that a woman had because of what Jesus Christ meant to her life. Now, I want us to, before we get into it, I want us to talk about our possessions. And there are three things that I want us to see this morning. First of all, our possessions are a tool, a tool to share the gospel and to further the gospel. God has blessed us. America is the richest nation in the world. We are the most mission-minded giving nation in the world. And we need to understand that God blesses us not so we can squander it, but so that we can give it. God's resources are given to us so that our needs can be met, but so that we can meet the others around us who have needs when God puts them in our path. Secondly, our possessions are a test. They're a test to see if we have a kingdom vision, if we have a kingdom mindset. If when I get my paycheck, the only thing I think about is, how can I spend this on me? I do not have the mind and heart of God. I'm not even sure you can know God. And not when you get your resources, come to the conclusion, some part of this has to go to a kingdom vision. Because God has blessed us, and He has called us, and the Great Commission has not been rescinded. You and I are tested to see if we have that kind of vision. And we are to expand the gospel in every way possible, with our lips with our lives, with our talents, with our treasures. Thirdly, our possessions are a testimony to others about our priorities. They are a testimony to others about our priorities. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you died today, if you died today, before this day was over, how many people would you meet in heaven who would thank you for investing in kingdom business, who have been saved as a result of what you've done with your life and your resources. 
Would you stand alone in a corner while others get thanked and others are, are appreciated for what they've done? Would you hear the well done from Jesus Christ because you have invested in kingdom business? Or would you stand by yourself and say, there's nobody here today because of me. But I got here. You won't be happy. It'll be like hell for you. It won't be heaven. Because if it's just there and it's just you, there's no glory of God in that. You and I are called to invest in people and in ministry so that God can expand the kingdom. And I want you to see this quote by Wesley Wilmer, and I want you to read it along with me that's in your notes. At the core of spiritual growth is the realization that all believers have a choice as to which kingdom they will follow the temporary kingdom here on earth, or the eternal kingdom where our soul will dwell forever with God. It is a choice we must make deliberately or it will be made for us. On paper, this would seem like a no-brainer, something believers would not give a second thought. Scripture depicts the believer who is not investing in eternity as short-sighted or blind, unwise, is too weak a word. As stupid as the fool in Luke 12 is more like it. Our central business here on earth is to prepare for the next life, not for a comfortable retirement. We do what we do reveals who we are. What you and I do, how we spend our lives and our time and our resources reveals who we are. It's what we're about because what we do is an expression of our priorities. It also means that our view of stuff reveals our priorities. You know all that stuff you've got that you had to have. You just needed it. No, you didn't need it. You just wanted it. And you had a credit card, or you had a little cash, or you got a tax refund, and you said, I'm going to go do that for myself because I deserve it. McDonald's is going to give me a break today, and I deserve something for myself. So I'm just going to go squander this on myself. And you never gave a thought, did God give this to me to give to somebody else? Did God give this to me to give it away? Do I hold this tightly, and is it mine, and I lock it up, and I secure it, and I make sure nobody gets their hands on it, and I just keep it until I get tired of it, and then I sell it as junk in a yard sale or give it to Goodwill when it's no good so I can get a tax credit? Is that our motivation? Our stuff reveals our priorities. Let me ask you a question. How much could you do without that you think you have to have right now? For most of us, that's a lot. There are a lot of things that we could do without that somewhere we have convinced ourselves we really need this and we really deserve this. But our stuff, or saying no to some of that stuff, says something about our priorities. Lastly, for lives to be changed, we have to change our values. And I'm not talking about our moral values there. I'm talking about our monetary values. What's important to us? and raise our commitment level. We have to change our values, what we put value on, and raise our commitment level. What is it that we value? You see, it, it, 
if you're like me, you're in danger of getting worried when somebody dings your car in the parking lot, but not worried about the people that die and go to hell. And we can get more concerned about a possession that gets a nick on it than about a soul that's going to spend eternity in hell. And that says that we need to change what we value because it is just stuff. You're not going to take it to heaven with you. It's not going there. The only thing you're going to have in heaven is what you've sent ahead. And you and I need to understand that we have to raise our commitment level because the times are so serious that we must understand that being about the ministry of sharing the gospel is more important than ever before. And so I want you to read beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold over three, for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him stuff, money. I want to tell you something, folks. The devil will give you whatever you want if you play the devil's game. If you buy into his world system and to his philosophy, he'll make sure you get what you want and you'll be miserable having it. You have the same spirit Judas had, who when he got it, he hated it, and he threw it back, but he couldn't take back the choice he had made. And then he says, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. I want you to look at the story that reveals two perspectives on life. You see, people have an idea about the name of Jesus. It's either they embrace it, and it's precious to them, or it's offensive to them. There are people who hated the name of Jesus. They hated what he stood for. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, hated what Jesus was doing. They could not accept love and grace and peace and forgiveness. They could not believe that someone would claim to be God, nor could they believe that anyone would want to hang around with sinners. They were too good to hang around with sinners because they didn't think they were sinners. By the way, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And the only difference between us and a lost sinner is we've been saved by grace. They haven't been. But we're still sinners. Some saved by grace. Some need to hear about it. Amen. But you see, we're all sinners. None of us are too good to hang around with anybody. But it is by grace that you have been saved. 
Not your works, not your good deeds, not your church membership, not your baptism, not your being nice to people, not walking little old ladies across the street. It is by grace that you've been saved. You need to remember that you are lost and just as lost as the worst sinner you can think of. And it took the same blood to save you that it will take to save them. So they hated Jesus. But you look at this comparison of these two, and there's Mary. It's worth everything to her to worship the Lord. It's worth everything to her. But, but for Judas, it's a waste of good perfume. Why would you waste all of that? Why would you do that? Here's Mary, and, and she's giving her all, but Judas sells out. And I want to tell you, there are businessmen in this room, and there are businessmen who call themselves Christian who will sell out for influence, for promotion, for job security, and miss the blessing of giving their all and being uncompromisingly and unapologetically Christian in who we are and what we do. Mary was loyal and filled with love. Judas was filled with greed. Now I want to ask you, which one would you identify with the most? Which one would you identify with the most? Is your first response a merry response? I want to give God my best. Or is your first response, how much of that could I get and could I keep? Which response would be first years? First impulse. Jesus came and it was a time of Passover and it was just before the cross. And they were seeking to take him away and to kill him. They wanted to put him out of business so that they could get back on their old track. And the Pharisees were after him. But Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and he set his heart on saving men. And so we pick up a story in Simon's house, who's a leper that Jesus has cleansed, and Mary is there. We really didn't know in, in Matthew and Mark's gospel that, that it's Mary. John tells us that it's Mary of Bethany. And so she's there. The disciples are there. But the only disciple that's mentioned by name is Judas. I find that incredibly interesting. God has painted a picture of contrast for us between Judas and Mary. He has shown us that two people can sit in the same room and hear the same sermon, the same songs, the same message, read the same Bible, go to the same church, and come to two totally different conclusions about how to live their life. Some in this room have a merry heart you want to do whatever you can do to show your love for God. Some in this room today, quite honestly, you may have a Judas heart. You're trying to figure out how you can get more and keep more and make sure people don't get any more from you. You can hear the same message, see the same baptisms, hear the same songs, read the same Bible, sit in the same Sunday school class and be at two different extremes of where you need to be in your walk with God. So I want us to look at these two columns. And I want us to do a little comparison here. And you will find yourself leaning toward one column or the other. Everyone in this room, every child, every young person, every single, every adult, every senior adult in this room will find themselves leaning either toward Mary or toward Judas. And you've got to be leaning. There's no neutral ground. You can't be both. And so here we have Mary. She's motivated by love. When you look at Mary, her motivation for what she does is not a tax write-off. She's motivated out of pure love for God. 
Judas is driven by materialism. He's driven by materialism. He's driven by the want for more. If I could just get more, have more, get a little bit, then I'll be happy. It's like the old story of John Rockefeller. How much money does it take to be happy? Just a little bit more. I don't know how much you have to have to be happy, but I can tell you this. Happiness does not come in what you have. Happiness comes in who you are. Happiness does not, does not come in your bank account being big. Happiness comes in your heart being full. Mary was selfless. Selfless. Judas was selfish. It was all about him. Mary was humble. Judas was arrogant. He was assertive. He wanted to get that money for himself. Mary was rejoicing. Judas was complaining. Now, let me, let me just ask you a question. Which kind of person would you rather hang around with? Somebody that's rejoicing or somebody that every time you see them, they got a complaint? Well, let me tell you about my ingrown toenail. It's so terrible. You got about 30 minutes so I can complain? No. I don't. Life's too short to listen to complaining. And by the way, complaining's never changed anything. It's never changed anything. But rejoicing changes the way you look about the things you would normally complain about. Then there's the last one. Mary was grateful and Judas was greedy. Now this story exemplifies extravagant love. Mary is mentioned three times in the Gospels. All three times, she's at the feet of Jesus. By the way, I would suggest that's a good place to be, to be at the feet of Jesus. And you see the background there. The alabaster vial was an expensive vase with a large, long, slender neck that was made out of translucent gypsum, and the nard was an expensive perfume. And when you compare Mark with John's gospel, you see that not only did he pour it on his head, but, but, but she poured it on his feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And somebody would say, and some liberal theologians would say, oh, you see, the Bible contradicts itself. No, it just means one pointed out one thing and one pointed out the other. Two saw the same thing. They pointed out two different experiences. It's not contradictory to say that she did both. He would have been reclining at the table. That expensive ointment and that nard would have flowed down and she wiped his feet. Why? Because it was a sign of humility, a sign of service, a sign of love. And that pint of nard would have cost one year's salary. If a person made one denarius a day, that would have cost one year's wages. When Mary poured that out, she didn't go to Walmart on the clearance rack and find a bottle of cheap perfume and give it to Jesus like it was something that was costly. She got the most expensive thing she had, what she could have sold to take care of her in her last years, the thing that she held most precious, and she took the most precious thing she had, and she broke it, and she spilled it out, and she lavished it on Jesus. It is an act of worship. It's an act of love. She never saw it as a waste. She never saw it as losing anything. 
What she did was express to God her great love. And I want you to look at, in your notes at Warren Wiersbe says there are three consequences to her act of worship. Number one, the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. The house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. You ever walk through a department store in the cologne section? It mean before, just about the time you hit the door, it, it's, it just hits your nostrils. And you can smell it. All these aromas, you can smell it. This house was filled with the aroma. There was no doubt, no doubt that Mary had done something significant. There was no doubt that this costly, expensive perfume had been poured out. There was no question that she had done it. And by the way, she didn't do it secretly. When you pour out your best before God, everybody knows you do it. You see, she didn't hide and say, I, I'm going to give this, but I don't want anybody to know. She was a, extravagant in her expression. She was unapologetic to say, I'm giving the best that I've got. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm offering Jesus my worship and my love. She was extravagant in that. And when she was, everybody was influenced by the aroma in the room. Nobody missed it. Secondly, the criticism of her act, the criticism of her act was really a revelation that Judas and the others wanted the money for themselves. Now remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus, Judas would skim off the top he was the treasurer of the disciples. Judas wasn't interested in feeding the poor. He could have cared less about feeding the poor. He didn't care about them one bit. The only person Judas cared about was the person you could see in the mirror every morning, himself. And what it really revealed was that he wanted the money for himself. He wanted to sell that and figure out what he could do, how he could have that. In fact, the word waste in verse 4 is translated perdition in John 17, 12, and it refers to Judas. It refers to Judas. It's the same word as the word perdition. And what he does, he accuses Mary of wasting when what he was really saying was, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. I think I deserve it. Now, here's an important thing for us to understand. John 12 tells us that Judas was the treasurer, and he was greedy. We know he was greedy. He sold his Savior for 30 pieces of silver. Now, here's what we need to understand. If we're honest, I mean if we're honest, I don't mean surface answer. If we are honest, every one of us in this room covets something someone else has and think we deserve it more than them. And every one of us in this room is more greedy than we care to admit, if we're honest. Because you ride by a house and you think, I deserve to live in that house. You see somebody in a car, I deserve to be in that car. You see somebody with a nice suit on, I deserve that suit. I deserve that dress. I deserve that. I deserve to take that trip. Why do they get to do that? That's coveting. And you see what it reveals is there's more of Judas in us than there is of Mary. Rather than rejoicing with those who have, we are envious 
of those who might have. Because in the heart, we're just greedy. We just want more. We think we deserve more. We think we've earned it. We think we have a right to it. And we just want more. And, and Wiersbe says that all that, that does is reveal our real hearts, who we really are at the core. You see, listen, I, I've learned this in 30 years of being in ministry. Most people who complain about the church asking for money don't give any. Most people who complain about that church wants money. They don't give any. And by the way, they miss the point. The point is not your money. The point is your heart. Do you love money or do you love God? Your money expresses where your love is. Where your money goes shows where your heart is. And so what, what do you do? You ex do extravagant things for your children. Why? Because you love them. You don't sit there and say, my kids don't do anything but drink water and eat, eat a loaf of white bread. That's all they're going to get. That's all they're going to have. They're never going to supersize a meal because I want to prove to them that they don't deserve it. You don't do that. Now, just to show of hands, how many of you bought somebody in your family more at Christmas than you really needed to buy them? You did that because you hated them, didn't you? You did that because you just despised the fact that you had to give them anything. No, you did that because you loved them. And you were extravagant to show your love for them. And because you wanted to see the expressions on their faces when they opened up those things. And when they saw those things. And that you thought enough to not do what people did when my dad had a drugstore. We'd be open on Christmas Eve night and somebody would come into the drugstore and buy a cheap bottle of cologne and ask me to wrap it. And the wrapping paper cost more than the cologne did. And then they'd go say, I've been thinking about what to get you for Christmas. Here's Old Spice, $1.75. They didn't think about it. You know, you think and you plan when you're trying to be extravagant and when you're trying to express love. And, and if you being good to your children, what do you think God wants to be to you? If you want to express love to your children, how much love do you think God wants to express to you? You see, we're greedy in our hearts because the truth of the matter is it's never about money. It's always about the heart always about the heart. The scripture says you can't love God and money. The scripture says that the love of money is the root of all evil. You say, well, that's, what, that, that's right. Talk to all those rich people. I know a lot of people that are poor that love money. They go out and scratch little tickets, hoping that one little ticket's going to give them millions of dollars so they can have all those relatives they've never talked to show up at their trailer. Why? Because we think we're one little scratching of a lottery card, one little publisher's clearinghouse away from hitting the big time. Why? Because we're greedy. Because we're greedy. Because we want and we deserve and we think we have a right to it. Not Mary. Jesus commended, number three, Mary and accepted her gift. Can I tell you something? Nothing done for Jesus goes unnoticed or unrewarded. Nothing done for Jesus 
goes unnoticed or unrewarded. I heard a story of a man one time who, before one of the stock market downfalls, he had lost over a million dollars in the stock market when it had a, had a downturn, and he had just given a million dollars to his church. And somebody asked him, said, boy, I bet you wish you had that million dollars back now. He said, no. He said, because I'm going to see the results of that million, that other million, I'll never see anything from it. What I gave away, I get to keep. What I kept, I lost. Why? Because he had a Mary's heart. Now, let's look at the third thing. The Savior remembers those who go beyond themselves. Our campaign is generations going beyond ourselves. And I believe that God remembers people that have this kind of mindset and this kind of vision because you see the fragrance of this moment lingers today. We read this story today, 2,000 years after it happened, everybody in this room today, whether you had ever opened a Bible or not, you know that there was a woman named Mary who lived in Bethany who took the most expensive thing she had and a year's wages and she poured it on the head and the feet of Jesus. We remember her today. Somewhere in heaven, there's somebody's nudging Mary and saying, Mary, they're still talking about you. They're still talking about you. They're still telling everybody in the world what, what you did for our Lord. And Mary turns around to Jesus and she says, it was nothing compared to what you did for me. It was nothing compared to the gift that you gave me. You gave me your life. I simply gave you perfume. I gave you my best. You gave me your best. All the praise and honor and glory goes to Jesus, not to Mary. Because Mary did it because of Jesus. Left herself, she probably wouldn't have. But when she got changed by Jesus Christ, that fragrance filled the room, and we still sense it today. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. You will have the poor with you every day for the rest of your lives. Whenever you feel like it, you can do something for them. Not so with me. She did what she could when she could. She pre-anointed my body for burial. And you can be sure that wherever the whole mess world, the message is preached, what she just did is going to be talked about admirably. Now, by verse 6, I want you to write 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, which says, But thanks be to God, who manifests through us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You know what the Christian life is? The Christian life is a fragrance of Christ to God. To those who are being saved, we understand it. To those who are perishing, they see a changed life. They see a witness. They see somebody with different priorities. And they begin to realize that Christ really does make a difference in people's lives. And so I want to apply it to this situation. Number one, I'm asking every member to go beyond yourself and do something for Jesus. Nobody hides in the tall grass. Nobody runs for cover. We all can do something for Jesus. We all can do something for generations. We all can do something to go beyond ourselves, to sacrifice, to make an effort. 
And it is crucial that we do this, not to raise money, but that we raise our hearts more toward the heart of Mary and less toward the heart of Judas. Because left to ourselves, we will always drift toward Judas. But with our focus and our heart and our love on Jesus, we will move toward being more like Mary, willing to go beyond ourselves. Secondly, I'm asking you to do what you can. You, you see, she's done a good deed for me. She has done what she could. Jesus didn't ask her for something that was impossible for her to do. She's done what she could. And what she's done will be her legacy. So I'm asking you to do what you can do because you're going to leave a legacy. Each one of us leaves a legacy. They write stuff about us on our tombstones and there are things said about us in our obituaries, but our legacy lasts longer than the obituary in the newspaper and the granite tombstone. Our legacy lives on long after most people have forgotten us. Folks, listen. We have to do what we can do. Because we had a generation that came before us that came out here when there was nothing here but a dirt road. And they got six acres of land, and they built a facility on it, and they started a church. And you wouldn't be here today if they hadn't had that dream and that vision and acted on it. Amen. We wouldn't have these seats if they hadn't provided the first seats. We wouldn't have these walls if they hadn't built the first walls. We wouldn't have the parking spaces we have if they hadn't provided the parking spaces to begin with. Somebody came before you and decided it was worth investing in to be a part of Sherwood Baptist Church. Somebody will come after us. Will they say of us what we say of the first generation of this church? They left us a legacy. They provided a facility for us. They didn't burden us with their debt. They left us a legacy. They left us a facility. They left us a park and a complex for our kids to play on and for other kids to play on. For people to use, for singles, for young adults, for families to use in this community. Will they look back 50 years from now and say of us, we did what we could? Because you see, we are going to be judged by those who come after us. And we will not be able to come back from the grave and say, well, you don't understand. You see, you do what you can. And how do I know what I can do? You get before God. And God tells you what you can do. You get before Him and you pray and you seek His face and say, Lord, I'm available. I give you my life. I give you my mind. I give you my heart. I give you my body. I give you my soul for your use and for your glory. Now, what do you want me to do? And when you make yourself available to God, God will clearly make Himself available to you. Because you see, it's not about figuring out your resources. It's figuring out what do you love God enough that he can trust you with something so you can give it away. How much love can be expressed through your life? You do what you can. And then thirdly, I'm asking you to bind to the vision and leave a legacy, which I've already hit on. And you can be sure that wherever in the whole world the message is preached, what she did 
is going to be talked about admirably. One day we'll be gone. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One day, not long, a little boy and a little girl are going to walk into that baptistry water up there. And what their confession is going to be is, I met Jesus on a soccer field. I met Jesus on a baseball field. I met Jesus at the concession stand. I met Jesus cheerleading in upward football. I met Jesus playing basketball. Do you know that we had children and adults saved in this church yesterday at upwards during the devotion time? Why? Because we provided an opportunity in a Christian environment for somebody to come bounce a ball. And we gave them Christian coaches, and they shared their testimonies. And not just children, but some moms and dads gave their life to Jesus Christ yesterday. Think of that being multiplied hundreds of times, game after game after game on Saturdays on a field. And think about the fact that they're going to fill in these seats. And you're not going to want to be late for church because if you are, it's going to be full. And you may not get your normal seat because some new people came and got it. Because they didn't know that was your seat. Won't be able to stake your claim anymore because there are going to be people that come into this facility because they see that we did something for them. And they know that we did it out of love. Folks, this is bigger than sports. It's bigger than paying off a debt. It's people. It's about investing in the lives of people. Some of them we don't know yet. I love the song by Wayne Watson, Somewhere in the World Today a Little Girl Will Go Out to Play, all dressed up in mama's clothes, at least the way that I suppose it goes. Somewhere in the world to be, there's a boy And the song talks about praying for the person that will come to one day ask you for your daughter's hand in marriage. You know what, folks? You can leave them to the world or you can lead them to Jesus. Because some boy and some girl is going to marry your child one day. And the way they get to know Jesus may be because you sacrificed in generations. They may not even be born yet, but they're going to come, and we're going to leave a legacy. I want you to look at that quote by Walt Disney that's in your notes, because it's a great quote. Think beyond your lifetime. If you want to do something truly great, make a 50-year master plan. A 50-year master plan will change how you look at the opportunities of the present. Walt Disney built a theme park, several. But the second one he never saw. He designed it. He bought the land. He saw the dirt being moved, but he rarely visited Orlando. And on opening day, five years after his death, an opening day of Disney World in 1971, a man stood and said to one of the vice presidents of 
the Disney Corporation. Isn't it sad that Walt didn't live to see this? And the gentleman turned and said, he saw it. He saw it in his mind. He saw it in his heart. And he created a magical place. Folks, we're not creating a magical place. We're creating a place where eternity will be dealt with. It will be bigger, as Jason said, than the score of a game. It will be investing in people's lives for what really matters. You know, when I drive to Disney World and when I drive to Orlando, I notice something. Every business, every church, every shopping area is affected by one man's vision. You go to a gas station and there's a flower bed and you go and it's clean and you go any place in that town. Every church in town had to hire landscapers because they realized they couldn't have sorry facilities and have Disney World sitting right down the street. It raised the bar of everybody. Now, the sad thing to me is it took a theme park to raise the bar for the church. The church should have set the bar. But everything in Orlando, Florida today is influenced by one man who had one vision, and it was a 50-year dream. He did not physically live to see it, but it has changed everything about that community and how people do customer service, and how they treat people, and how they welcome people. It has changed the airport. It has changed the bus station. It's changed downtown. It's changed everything. Why? One man said, we're going to do something to make a difference. I am fully committed to believe that God, almost 50 years ago, put Sherwood Baptist Church at 2201 Whispering Pines, so that 50 years from now, everything in this community, every church in this community, every family in this community is impacted by the vision that we have. That nobody can ignore it or deny that we had a vision that changed a culture and a community. That's what God's called us to do. So I want to ask you three questions. First of all, What's your master plan? What's your master plan? Are you in on God's master plan? Secondly, what's your vision? And thirdly, what will be your legacy? What will be your legacy? What's your master plan? What's your vision? What will be your legacy? And every one of us have to answer that question. Let's pray together.